Hi, I'm Philip Anthony Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 108, Slavery and the Abrahamic Faiths. So today, as the title suggests, I want to talk about slavery and religion, specifically the concept of slavery as found in both the Quran and the Judeo-Christian Bible. I was inspired to cover this topic due to a recent news story. You've probably all heard by now that an Islamist extremist group known as Boko Haram recently kidnapped roughly 300 girls in Nigeria with the intent of selling them into slavery. I think as it stands, some of the girls have died or fallen sick. I think roughly 50 have luckily managed to escape. And I think a few have already been forced to marry some of their captors. Um, it's obviously a disturbing story, but I was further disturbed by the seemingly brash and unrepentant attitude of the kidnappers. They seem to proudly justify their actions by claiming that the Quran allows them to take slaves. So I naturally wondered if it was true, what is the Muslim view on slavery, and does the Quran actually condone it? And in fairness, while I'm at it, I figured I would see what the Judeo-Christian Bible has to say about slavery as well. I think, first of all, it's safe to say that slavery openly exists in both the Quran and the Bible. Both books even contain rules and regulations regarding the treatment and ownership of slaves. In the case of the Bible, apologists might claim that the Old Testament is referring to indentured servitude or something like that. Older translations like the King James Bible use archaic terms like bondmaid or bondservant, but newer translations like the New American Standard Bible explicitly use the word slave. Sometimes older versions will also use the term those you have bought with money or something like that, as in this strange bit from Genesis which has to do with circumcision as a mark of the covenant between God and Abraham. And I discovered this recently because I've been rereading uh, the Old Testament. Well, rereading suggests that I ever read it fully in the first place, which I haven't, but I've read a good portion of it. But I've been trying to get reacquainted with the material because I believe if you're going to criticize something, um, the least you can do if you want to be intellectually honest is to make yourself uh, familiar with the material. So this is Genesis 17:23, And Abraham took Ishmael his son, and all that were born in his house, and all that were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the selfsame day, as God had said unto him. And then 17:24, And Abraham was ninety years old and nine when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Man, that's a, that's a little late to be getting circumcised. Especially if a, a voice claiming to be God tells you to do it. But um, anyway, and uh, well, I, I was thinking, and, and if these are indeed slaves being referred to in those verses, uh, imagine how bad your luck must seem. Not only are you bound into slavery, but to top it off, no pun intended, your master suddenly decides he's going to circumcise you. Definitely not a good day. Um <clears throat> But on a serious note, I was wondering how I was going to cover this subject. And during my research, I came across an interesting exchange on Yahoo Answers. It seemed like a young Muslim lad, shall I say, for lack of a better word. I'm not sure um, if he was an adult, if, if he um, was just a kid. Um, 
but for lack of a better word, I would say lad, uh, that he had read some verses of the Quran that seemed to endorse slavery, and he seemed somewhat troubled by it, and he wanted some help clarifying the matter. As you might expect, there was a certain amount of trolling and back-and-forth religion bashing, but there was also a lot of sincere and informative commentary, and there were people providing chapter and verse examples for both the Quran and the Bible. Uh, but before I continue, I should say that from all my online reading, the general impression I get is that, yes, the Quran does seem to condone slavery, but at the same time, supposedly liberating a slave is seen as one of the most positive acts a Muslim can perform. It's even seen as a method of atonement for one's sins. From what I've read, it seems like there's... Um, Conflicting opinions about what Muhammad's view on slavery uh, was. Detractors try to uh, characterize him as a slave trader and a slave master. Well, those on the other side say that Muhammad not only advocated the freeing of slaves, even if it meant having to buy them first to do so, but he actually wanted to wipe out slavery itself through Islam. And apparently there was a practice, supposedly, of enslaving pagans or uh, polytheists in order to convert them to Islam. And it's funny, you uh, learn something new every day. For me, it was the word manumission, meaning the formal emancipation of a slave. It's a word you see a lot in regard to the liberating of slaves in Islam. But unfortunately, there's a darker side, uh, it would seem, too, regarding um, slavery and Islamic law. Supposedly, as was and still is the case with many cultures, uh, women didn't always fare very well. I'll read this little bit on sexuality or concubinage from uh, Wikipedia. Once again, Wikipedia, <laughs> which I found is usually rather trustworthy, but still, while I'm reading it, just be aware of where it's coming from. In Islamic law, Sharia, Ma Malakat Aymanukum, Oh, man, I hope I didn't butcher that. If you're a Muslim or uh, come from a Muslim background, I hope I didn't offend you by butchering that. Uh, but anyway, that is the term for slaves or captives of war. Um, and I'm now here I am quoting Wikipedia again. According to Muslim theologians, it is lawful for male masters to have sexual relations with female captives and slaves, regardless of whether or not the slave woman gave her consent. The purchase of female slaves for sex was lawful from the perspective of Islamic law, and this was the most common motive for the purchase of slaves throughout Islamic history. Now, see, that part, that almost smacks of opinion to me. They're saying that that was the most common motive for the purchase of slaves. Um, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Perhaps that's one of the bits you should take with a grain of salt. Um, but I continue. Al-Muminin 6 and Al-Marij 30. Hope I didn't slaughter those two. Uh, both in identical wording draw a distinction between spouses and those whom one's right hand possesses, saying literally their spouses or what their right hands possess, while clarifying that sexual intercourse with either is permissible. Said Abul Allah Muadudi, I think, explains that two categories of women have been excluded from the general command of guarding the private parts, A, wives, and B, women who are legally in one's possession. 
The verse can be broken into three parts. The Quran, chapter 4, on Nisa, verse 24. And also forbidden are all married women except those whom your right hands possess. This is Allah's ordinance to you. And I should uh, interrupt to say that um, phrase, those whom your right hands possess, or your right hand possesses, seems from my reading to be a euphemism, I guess for lack of a better word, for uh, slaves or the ownership of slaves. They're referred to as those whom your right hand possesses. Now I continue. And lawful for you are all women besides those provided that you seek them with your property taking them in marriage, not committing fornication. Then as to those whom you profit by, give them their dowries as appointed, and there is no blame on you about what you mutually agree after what is appointed. Surely Allah is knowing and wise. That seemed, that's a little hard to understand, but hopefully you get the gist. Um, it's just kind of worded in an archaic type of way, and I'm sure also it's been translated. Also, if I'm not mistaken, from what I've uh, read, it seems the case is that Muslims aren't supposed to enslave other Muslims, which makes me wonder whether or not the girls captured by Boko Haram were Muslim, which would make them hypocrites on top of being monstrous kidnappers. Uh, I've heard people say that the group's name means Western education is a sin. And I automatically thought to myself how ironic uh, it is in a sense, because much of Western education can in part be traced back to the Islamic or at least the Arab world, uh, such as algebra and the Arabic numerals we use in mathematics in general. And even a lot of the works of the classical world, the works of the great Greek philosophers, etc., are with us at least in part because they were preserved and transmitted by Arabic scholars. And this is what the concerned young Muslim writer on Yahoo Answers had to say in part. Some verses seem to permit the ownership of slaves. This is one such, and he says it's from Surat al-Azab. O Prophet, we have made lawful unto you your wives whom you have paid their dowries, and those whom your right hand possesses, slaves, of those whom Allah has given as spoils of war. And then he continues, Yet they should be granted freedom if they should so ask. And he gives another verse. And let those who cannot find a way to marriage be chaste until Allah of his bounty enrich them. And if those who your right hands possess ask for a deed of manumission, write it down for them if you know good in them, and give them a portion of the wealth of Allah which he has given you. And he says, if slaves can be given freedom whenever they want it, then wouldn't there be any slaves? In his English, um, you can hear his intelligence in his writing, but maybe uh, English is in his first language because some of the syntax, etc., seems a little off. And he says, uh, that is, no one in their right mind would want to live in slavery, so they wouldn't really be slaves then. If freedom is easily accessible to the slaves, then can they really be called slaves? Uh, and now, this is me. Well, it's a good question. If all a slave had to do is ask for their freedom, why wouldn't they? And in that case, would it even really be slavery in the truest sense? But I imagine it wasn't that simple. According to those verses, it's up to the slave master's judgment and discretion, or, or so it seems. And I imagine whether or not a slave was quote-unquote good was in the eye of the beholder. And there may have been many masters who were 
more than a little hesitant to simply liberate a valued slave. And even in the case before when I was saying they would uh, supposedly enslave uh, pagans in order that they could kind of try to integrate them into Islam, you know, perhaps they were given their freedom once they embraced Islam, but still they were taken by force into uh, slavery. So we still have, in cases, human beings being taken against their will. Uh, but interestingly, another Muslim commentator responded with some examples of where the Bible, too, seems to condone slavery. I tried to vet the verses he quoted, and they seem to be the real deal. Uh, if you go to a site I really like called Bible Hub, I'm not sure if it's a religious site or not, but it does a great job of cataloging biblical verses and offering all the various translations. And there are many, ranging from the traditional King James Version to uh, many modern translations. It looks like the commentator is uh, quoting the NLT, which would be the New Living Translation. So you may see some translations that differ a bit, but they're all more or less in the same ballpark or carry the same gist. And here he offers a verse from Leviticus. And this is Leviticus 25, 44 through 46. However, you may purchase male or female slaves from among the foreigners who live among you. You may also purchase the children of such resident foreigners, including those who have been born in your land. You may treat them as your property, passing them on to your children as a permanent inheritance. You may treat your slaves like this, but the people of Israel, your relatives, must never be treated this way. And in a way that's kind of similar to the um, attitude towards slavery that I described in Islam, where you shouldn't enslave your own people, at least those belonging to your own faith, but foreigners and non-believers, pretty much fair game. And then he gives a, um, an example from Exodus. And it's funny because in the previous uh, verses, they talk about how you're not supposed to take a slave uh, from among the people of Israel, from your relatives or whatever. But these following verses actually give a description of how you should treat a Hebrew slave. So maybe there's some nuance I'm missing. But anyway, here's Exodus 21, 2 through 6. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for only six years. Set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. If he was single when he became your slave, then married afterward, only he will go free in the seventh year. But if he was married before he became a slave, then his wife will be freed with him. If his master gave him a wife while he was a slave and they had sons or daughters, then the man will be free in the seventh year, but his wife and children will still belong to his master. But the slave may plainly declare, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I would rather not go free. If he does this, his master must present him before God. Then his master must take him to the door and publicly pierce his ear with an awl. After that, the slave will belong to his master forever. I'm just kind of chuckling because there's someone who at least in part does... Uh, construction for a living and who remembers woodshop in school, definitely wouldn't look forward to having my ear uh, pierced by an awl. Okay, and here's another bit from Exodus 21, 7 through 11. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she will not be freed at the end of six years as the men are. 
If she does not please the man who bought her, he may allow her to be bought back again, but he's not allowed to sell her to the foreigners, since he is the one who broke the contract with her. And if the slave girl's owner arranges for her to marry his son, he may no longer treat her as a slave girl, but he must treat her as his daughter. If he himself marries her and then takes another wife, he may not reduce her food or clothing or fail to sleep with her as his wife. If he fails in any of these three ways, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. And the Muslim commentator who uh, gave these... Um, passages as examples, he kind of remarks at the end uh, sarcastically about how so these are the uh, Bible's family values. Well, food for thought, definitely. Oh, but then he goes on to give uh, another example that involves uh, the beating of a slave, and this is also from Exodus. When a man strikes his male or female slave with a rod so hard that the slave dies under his hand, he shall be punished. If, however, the slave survives for a day or two, he is not to be punished, since the slave is his own property. Well, that is kind of twisted. And for people who actually don't sit down and read the Bible, Christians who aren't perhaps as acquainted as they should be with the Old Testament, I'm sure this stuff probably comes as quite a surprise. And I think it's, it's hard to, to argue that these texts are divinely inspired when they contain this kind of stuff. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, the slim chance that they were divinely inspired, what the heck would that say about God? Yeah. Um, not my idea of a just God. And here he gives some examples, surprisingly, from the New Testament. Now, I have read the entire New Testament, but it's been some time, and I was probably uh, somewhat glassy or glossy-eyed when I was reading Beyond the Gospels, admittedly. Uh, it may not have really soaked everything in, but there are portions of the New Testament um, that deal with slavery. And here's one. Here's a Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. And here's um, a couple of verses from uh, Timothy 6. Christians who are slaves should give their masters full respect so that the name of God and his teaching will not be shamed. If your master is a Christian, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. You should work all the harder because you are helping another believer by your efforts. Teach these truths, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. And here's some uh, verses, uh, for, well, actually... Verses 47 through 8 from Luke 12. The servant will be severely punished, for though he knew his duty, he refused to do it. But people who are not aware that they are doing wrong will be punished only lightly. Much is required from those to whom much is given, and much more is required from those to whom much more is given. Eh, that one might be kind of hit and miss. You could say that it's meant to be an allegory. Um... But even so, it's still using the symbolism of a servant being punished. Um, but it's funny, we often hear quoted, the much is required from those to whom much is given. But you don't often hear <laughs> that bit right before about the servant, be, about the, uh, servant being punished. Oh, and here I wanted to add for good measure, um, this is Leviticus 19.20. 
And I don't know if it addresses slavery exactly per se, but it does talk about the um, the taking of women into captivity, which, well, taking someone into captivity, that's slavery, uh, I would imagine. Well, maybe not if they're not meant to uh, perform menial work or something, but still they're being taken against their will. And this is one that a lot of atheists or non-believers, uh, I think even I've used this one in the past, will point out as an example of kind of the uglier side of the Bible. And Christopher Hitchens uh, used to um, quote this one as well, but uh, here we go, I'll read it. Moses and Eleazar, the priest, and all the leaders of the congregation went out to meet them outside the camp. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the captains of the thousands and the captains of the hundreds, who had come from service in the war. And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold these, cause of the sons of Israel, through the council of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Now therefore kill every male among the little ones, and kill every woman who has known man intimately. But all the girls who have not known man intimately spare for yourselves. And I like the kind of dark joke that Christopher Hitchens used to uh, make. He used to say, well, we probably can all guess why they were taking the young virgin women for themselves. They probably weren't keeping them as pets. They were probably using them for sexual gratification or, you know, pleasure slaves or something like that. And it's ugly, it's distasteful, but in a way all you can do is laugh because of how it shocks our modern moral sensibilities and how it goes against um, what most would expect to find in the Bible. But those quotes from the Judeo-Christian Bible, both the Old and New Testament, uh, well, pretty interesting. It makes you see how Christian slavers um, could have indeed used the Bible to try to justify what I see as their unjustifiable actions. People throughout history have used the Bible to either denounce or condone slavery. As I just mentioned, um, slave traders and slave owners um, use Bible verses, perhaps some of the ones that I quoted just a bit ago, in order to try to uh, condone their actions. But then you have people like Martin Luther King Jr., an abolitionist, who um, tried to find some of the more positive and inspirational bits in the Bible in order to try to denounce slavery. And often I think abolitionists would uh, try to draw a parallel between the story of the Hebrews and the Exodus out of Egypt and their own plight and, and their own efforts to try to escape uh, the bondage of slavery. So it would seem that no matter how uncomfortable it is for believers, there it is. Slavery is in your holy books, uh, which should make you wonder, at least a little, as I said earlier, you know, it should make you wonder whether uh, those texts are truly divinely inspired. Unfortunately, it seems like slavery was a staple of life in the ancient world, and I think it's hard for us to wrap our heads around, especially from a humanist point of view, how a human being could capture or buy another living, breathing human being and keep them like cattle, or should I say chattel. Um, 
How can you square that with the idea of a just God? I don't know. But it probably has something to do with an ancient tribalistic mindset. The spoils of war, including human spoils, go to the victor. Um, but sadly, as I just recently touched on, let's not forget that up until the 19th century, right here in America, we had slavery. So that dark impulse to want to own other people as if they're property, as if they're nothing more than domestic livestock, um, that was with us to not too long ago in the so-called civilized West, and it's still going on in parts of the world, as exemplified by that um, news story of Boko Haram uh, that inspired me to do this episode, a story that's still in the headlines now. And it makes you shake your head, but hopefully it also makes you want to be a better human being and try to safeguard against those impulses and, and keep things like that from happening in the future and maybe even trying to stop them from happening now in um, the third world. And possibly in a way you could argue with human trafficking that there may even be slavery in a sense still going on in our country and all over the world. Is that too heavy of a note to end on? I, I hope not, but uh, I think it was important to say. But anyway, I'll call this episode a wrap. Um, as usual, if you're a regular listener, you know by now, you can follow the show on Facebook, uh, Twitter, um, YouTube. Uh, you can subscribe to the show through Podbean or um, iTunes. And uh, thanks to friends of the show, Chris Weber, I finally created a Patreon account. And I had no idea what Patreon was until I heard him mention it on his um, podcast, C-Web Sunday School. And what it is, I think it was actually created by an artist, by a, by a musician, I think. It's a way for patrons or fans to support their favorite artists, podcasters, uh, entertainers, etc. And I think it's Patreon dot com slash the week in doubt i think and i'm still learning the ropes i've created an account but i'm still not even completely sure what i'm doing um but so far it's set up where if someone wanted to i i think the sum is up to the individual it could probably be as low as a dollar but you can pledge to contribute like as little as a dollar on a monthly basis and you can quit anytime you want and um as I mention every week, there's also a PayPal widget on the official uh, Weekend Out Podbean page where you can contribute as little as 99 cents. And like I always say to you guys, I don't like it when other podcasters try to um, guilt me for donations. So I completely understand if you don't want to uh, take part. And the only reason why I even bring it up is because, you know, basically I do this as a labor of love. Um, I don't make any money off of it. Even when I used to do the audible.com um, spots, uh, I never earned one red cent off of that because the way it worked was you do a spot for audible.com. And if someone signs up for a free trial membership, um, then you get some kickback. But that never happened. Uh, yeah, so basically, you know, any expenses for the show, like my... Um, my monthly Podbean fees and things like that. 
uh, that comes out of my pocket. Um, you know, I, I don't make any uh, dough off of doing the show. But whether or not I make money off of the show, I'll continue to do it. Because like I said, it's a labor of love. And the podcast started out um, because I had originally wanted to do a book, which I started working on again, actually, recently. And just since I was probably a teenager, I literally fantasized about creating a book that contained all of my kind of existential thoughts, all my views on religion, my philosophical uh, take on things. You know, I want to distill all that into a single volume. And I had planned on writing a book and all of a sudden like a light bulb went off and I said to myself, you know, I could do a podcast and right away, you know, I could just sit down, record an episode express myself, express my thoughts on religion, etc. You know, I could almost instantaneously share those thoughts with others. Um, it'd be a lot quicker than uh, doing a book. And basically, that's why I started the podcast. And also because I would watch, like, atheist debates. And um, sometimes, you know, I would feel like maybe an atheist, no matter how good they were, kind of dropped a ball or let one pass the goalie, you know, and I would say to myself, almost like the way like a sports fan would yell at the TV, I'd be like, oh, why didn't you say this or that? You know, or if I was there in that debate, I would have said this. So I said, you know, the podcast would be a way where I can get my two cents into the, uh, in, into the debate. So that's basically why I do the podcast. But I am back to working on that book, but I have a long way to go. And um, one thing I've really liked about doing the podcast also that maybe I wouldn't get as much if I'd only done a book is that I get this real give and take with the listeners. Um, you know, I publish an episode and almost right away I can see what you guys have to say on Twitter or um, through Facebook messages or something like that or even from iTunes reviews. Well, I suppose if I published an iBook, I could get iTunes reviews. But anyway, I think doing a weekly podcast, you know, it gives me more of an opportunity to interact with like-minded individuals and to get the feedback of fans. Um, and I almost feel arrogant using the word fans, you know. Um, you guys keep me on my toes and I consider you peers and uh, you guys keep me going. If I didn't think anyone was listening... I probably would have lost um, some significant steam by now. But knowing that there's people out there who listen to the show, who appreciate it, and who are willing to give me feedback, that definitely keeps me going. Uh, but with that said, uh, as always, thanks for listening to The Week in Doubt, and until next week.